This conversation was supported by Doppelmeyer Garaventa Group. You know, you start off with the simple things like, why do people want to come work in the ski industry? Uh, it's a big question. Um, 52% of my staff don't ski. Uh, people, it's for a lot of people, it's just a job. You have tuned in to Pod Sam, the podcast channel of Sam Magazine, the voice of the mountain resort industry. Headlines about the pandemic are being replaced by news of another growing crisis, labor shortages and the lack of affordable housing. Without enough workers, mountain resorts and many other businesses are being forced to reduce hours of operation or close parts of their business temporarily. Exacerbating this problem is the dearth of affordable housing for employees due in part to the booming real estate market in mountain towns. These two issues combined have caused a genuine crisis. On this episode, we discuss how these historically cyclical problems seem different now and what plans are being made for the future to address them. We'll start the discussion here with Sam publisher, Olivia Rowan. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Olivia Rowan, the publisher of Sam Magazine, and joining me today's co-host is our new senior editor, Katie Britton. On to our discussion around the current labor and affordable housing challenges in our mountain resort communities. We have a top-notch panel of experts and operators from three different regions to help us understand a little little bit about the historical perspective, how this current crisis is different um, from some of what we've seen in in our historical perspective that Andy's gonna provide, and explore some of the solutions um, that are out there. So I'll introduce each panelist as we go along, and I think that'll be easy, but um, let's get started. So in our research for the title, it became clear that our current challenges are felt in most ski areas and ski resort towns in North America. We are once again in this together. We thought we wouldn't have to keep saying that, but we do. And um, we collaborated in ways we never have done before to navigate the pandemic. And I think that same collective effort is needed now on these challenges we have before us. We have to reimagine what is a sustainable mountain community and what it looks like and better define a career path in the mountain resort industry. Many of our people can no longer afford to live um, near our mountains and we can no longer rely on the way we have positioned jobs at resorts because the competition is up to their game and there have been ideological challenges in the workforce. As I mentioned, I'm joined by our new senior editor, Katie Britton. She was one of our 10 under 30 honorees in 2017. And Katie, your story is a classic mountain town employee story. And just tell us how so. Sure, thanks, Olivia. So like many others, I came to Vermont for a winter, thinking it'd be my only winter season uh, as an employee. I thought it'd be a fun way to kill some time and earn some cash while I was looking for a real job. I was inspired by a few key people that first season to imagine that I could have a real job and a career, a life in the snow sports industry. I didn't know exactly what that path might look like. What were the growth opportunities? Uh, What did success mean in the industry? How would I make it sustainable? What would I do in the off season? Uh, But I was really fortunate to have the support and the latitude to explore that and figure it out. I pursued my credentials on snow as a ski instructor, as well as a master's in English lit. And I've been really lucky to land a killer gig at a killer place, Sam. Uh, But for me, this housing crisis is personal. I love my snow sports community and I see a clear opportunity for us to better capture and cultivate new employees, people like me a decade ago who didn't know exactly what they were gonna do in the industry, but knew they wanted to stick around. So I think that while the challenges are multifold, this crisis is a call to action to revise what it means to live and work in a snow sports community and in the industry and why someone might want to. Thanks Katie for sharing that. I think that's important to kind of hear that firsthand um, experience there that you had. Um, so let's dive in. Um, we're going to start with Andy Bigford. And Andy um, is a former editor-in-chief and publisher of Ski Magazine. And he is the editor and co-author with Chris Diamond of the Ski Inc. books that many of us have read. And he's been a close follower of the employee affordable housing issues starting back in the 1980s. 
we've asked him here today um, to create a little bit of the historical, like where we've been and how is it different now? And, and you know, you really, you can take some lessons learned in history so that you don't repeat the same mistakes. And I, I think we'll, we'll take a little deep dive on, on the historical perspective before we um, bring it up to current um, challenges right now. So Andy, take it away. All right, I uh, started my timer and I'll stop after an hour. <laughs> and uh, I'm just looking at the big picture here and, um, and with the Western and employee housing uh, slant to it. And, uh, you know, the bottom line at the end of the day is, you know, if you don't have housing, you don't have employees and you can't run the lifts, but it's a lot deeper than that. It's about, you know, how healthy your community is and how good is it? And, you know, what do you want to be and how important are the people and the, and the service? And so beyond relatively easy um, old lodge conversions to seasonal dorms for J1s and H2Bs, getting into employee housing construction is going to be the most hyper-local, complex, super frustrating and often brutal struggle where you're trying to do the right thing and all you've done is create more problems. This pandemic exacerbated issue that we have right now is further, um, it's further worsened by this unusual thing that we have labor and employee housing and housing shortages across the land. Um, and so that's another factor that's come into this. And so I want to start at the beginning. And um, I blame Warren Miller for all this, because he was in the parking lot in Sun Valley in 1947 with his trailer, shooting rabbits, cooking them on the radiator, um, you know, hosting huge parties with Sun Valley socialites. And it was kind of cool and exciting and romantic. It was part of the mystique. So a bunch of us slept in sleeping bags in the back of cars when we first went into mountain communities. We've all been there. And, uh, and you know, one of the raps is the old timers say, hey, I did that. I went through that. You can too. But when you have a quarter of your workforce living in a van down by the river, and there are a bunch of them are families, it's a major, major crisis. And so, um, you know, another discussions that comes up is, is it really the, you know, the, the um, responsibility of a ski resort in a community? There are a lot of businesses, a lot of these are mountain towns or resort towns more than ski towns. And you have, the answer is yes, you have to be a leader. You have to do everything you can. You have to partner with everybody and, uh, and get ready, you know, get ready to undergo it. And uh, um, <clears throat> so this thing that's come up here in the West and in the East too, out of all this is that there's a class warfare that's not healthy. And it's locals versus second homeowners who might have trophy homes who don't use them all the time. And then even against tourists, and we've seen protests aimed at, at tourists and we've seen a new code of ethics for visitors. Um, this summer, Crested Butte canceled its tourism advertising campaign and instead channeled the money into messaging which told those incoming visitors that the community was hurting, the workforce was stressed out, and that there were like, likely to be long waits and things weren't gonna go as smoothly as they used to go. And please bear with us and just kind of keep that in mind. For me, housing has been um, a personal thing from when I was a ski bum in 77 and slept on you know, the floor of employee housing and and then into the 80s, working in Aspen in the late 80s, where it actually is just absolutely imploded. And, uh, and I ran the newspaper there and it became really the number one issue. And this was a time when people who lived in Glenwood 
could work at either Aspen or Vail. That's what it had come to. People were living in Glenwood and going back and forth. People were, you know, they were, they were used to uh, uh, what was gonna be a 20 to a 100 mile commute every day. <clears throat> the, the anecdote that got to me was that Pitkin and Aspen were home to the first ski town housing authority begun in 1982. Biggest, most foremost, they probably provide a couple thousand beds today. And when they introduced in 1988, the first ever entry level single family residences, I had friends who were couples in the ski bum way, not married. They decided to take the plunge and get married and have kids so they could improve their odds of winning the one in 100 lottery to get a future in Aspen and a home. So um, <clears throat> that's some of the history. And as I went on from that, I studied all the elevation evolutions and ski town politics and thought a lot about, you know, how could you create the perfect mix in a ski community and, and what could you do? And I looked closely at Whistler and Vail and the fact that because Whistler started out Basically, it's a system we wouldn't live for. Um, they required the buyers there, the, the real estate buyers, to be residents or and to work in the town. And that allowed them to build, a, you know, to have a lot stronger community with warm beds for visitors and the workers. And, uh, and so they had a quarter as much brick and mortar to do the same amount of skier visits. And, and because Vail back then especially was so full of bacon trophy homes and that's just water under the bridge, but it's interesting to go back and look at it and see it. And I have a, a Vail anecdote. I, I, you know, and I've, I've watched Vail closely, closely over the years <clears throat> and, and in particularly in recent years to express how you know, difficult it can be in this deed-restricted, subsidized housing world where you're coming in to infill um, with, with this stigmatized worker housing. There were just a couple of high-profile projects, one in the last few days, one months ago, where Vail Resorts with an independent developer got the Heisman in trying to you know, build employee housing. And it was, they were trying to do the right thing and it was pain and suffering. The most recent was when the Vail Town P&Z denied um, their approval <clears throat> for some local residences because they didn't fit the brand of Vail. The visuals were not correct. And that's like having a fire engulf your downtown and then stopping the fire trucks before they get there because they're not color coordinated. And that's the kind of thing we're looking at. On the other flip side of it, they've done something that is so veil and is the kind of thing that has to been done like dozens of times and hundreds of times through ski country to start to restore a balance. They began a deed buyback program. Those are common. They're environmentally sensitive. They're efficient. They're the best way to go. You buy homes that aren't being used and you convert them to be deed restricted to locals employees. Vail didn't call it employee housing. They called it residence housing. And they said it was about the future maintenance and preservation of their community, which would just blow away without anybody living there and nobody to answer fire alarms, by the way. <clears throat> Furthermore, rather than instituting the long list of usually onerous restrictions with employee housing, and that's like rental caps, resale caps, appreciation caps, and of course, you know, the enforcement board, which is always there to make sure the person's living and likely working in bail, they eliminated all that and they created another free market for residence housing. And the only restriction attached to that 
was that it had to be sold to a resident. <clears throat> it had to be rented to a resident and the rest could work itself out. And, and so far they've managed to deed restrict 160 units, it's 375 pillows and there are enlightened souls out there who have bought into this, they get a payment of about $100,000, maybe $75,000. That doesn't make up what they're giving up if they wanted to sell it on the free market, because they're do but they're doing it anyway. And so that kind of thing is the unique hyper-local solutions that just need to be come up with everywhere. That was great. Thanks so much, Andy. Next up, we have Jason Blevins, who's the outdoor business writer at the Colorado Sun. And Jason, your group recently did a survey of thousands of Colorado Mountain Town residents, new and old, to get a clear look at the impact of the pandemic um, on housing, rentals, and lifestyle in the high country. And um, what can you, you know, at, in our calls, this crisis and these challenges are really seen in all over North America. So what can we learned from the results of your survey in Colorado and what were some of the key takeaways? Yeah, that was the Colorado Association of Ski Towns, Northwest Colorado Council of Governments. They surveyed really shockingly large population. Lots of people were willing to, to dive into this survey, 4,700 residents from six counties. And they basically, you know, revealed sort of the severe problems that, that everybody on this call knows about. Um, and I feel like, I don't know, we've been banging this drum forever. Everybody knows labor shortage, no housing. Ski towns haven't built housing in a long time and in the volume that they need. Everybody's been caught flat footed. Um, what's really interesting about this survey that was conducted were the recommendations. These are veteran housing consultants and they really threw some pretty bombastic proposals out there in terms of ways to remedy this housing and labor shortage that we're seeing across the uh, across the high country of Colorado and really across pretty much the entire resort landscape in the West. Um, you know, they, they said stuff like we need to charge vacant ta taxes for vacant homes. Second homes need to pay a higher property tax rate. Short term rentals need to be taxed like a commercial property. Um, these are really big <laughs> shifts um, that will most certainly rile um, second homeowners and really the the economies of these ski towns, but it also reflects how critical this these issues have become in ski towns. I've been out here covering stuff for 25 years in the high country of Colorado, and you cannot have a single conversation right now, whether it's about a new chairlift, public lands management, wildlife, just start naming things, trailheads, and it all boils back down to what's going on with housing in the Colorado high country record real estate. You know, we're talking up two, three X in volume, even this year pacing ahead of 2019 previous years, 2020 was unbelievable record setting year. People coming in second home owners moving in full time. What this is going to look like for these communities is uh, something that will resonate for decades these many communities are at a tipping point businesses are closing their doors for you know nights or entire days or several days in a row um and really there's this growing call both at the grassroots level and at the state level and at the community level for some kind of ways to adjust how we get affordable housing workforce housing built and he was talking about the Indeed program in Vail. They've spent $11 million on those 375 units. Aspen has 3,000 affordable units in their housing authority program. And, you know, Steamboat Rock County passed a tax that, that generates close to a million bucks a year for affordable housing. And they're generating close to 100 units a year off that tax money. So there's there are solutions underway, but no one seems to think we're going to be able to build ourselves out of this crisis alone. It needs to be a combination of programs like that Vale Indeed, which is essentially conservation easement on your home. Um, it needs to be really heavy handed developer incentives, ways to get developers in there. We're seeing, like Andy mentioned, you know, the, the struggle to get stuff built in Vale is 
ongoing and perpetual and it's not happening. And you often wonder why those developers stay at it when they can easily go up and build a $25 million house and not have near the headaches, not be, you know, turned into villains at the local level because they want to build apartments. Um, there's just a lot of different, you know, impacts with low people next door who don't want to see it, an apartment complex, but we need to find, they need, these communities need to find a way to zone density, allow for density. The irony in a lot of these places is that it is much easier to build a $25 million, 30,000 square foot house than it is to build housing for locals. Like it's almost a use by right to go build the biggest thing you've ever seen for a one family versus building homes for a hundred families. Um, and that that's kind of upside down. And I think everyone's starting to realize that, but how we get there is going to be pretty crazy. And one of the questions I enjoy asking everybody when I do these calls and do these panels is, is it smart to make, the biggest sweeping changes to zoning and cultural community changes in, in regulations and how you re regulate zoning and density after the craziest year anyone has ever lived through <laughs> a once in a lifetime event. Is it worth creating this huge shift and pivot and, you know, the way that we govern housing and look at landscapes and, and build affordable housing? Do we anchor that? off a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic year. That's just me playing devil's advocate. But I think most people in resort towns are saying, yes, this is the time to double down, go big, make the changes we need, and, and make this happen. I think it's a, a great question whether the, the pandemic is the right moment, but I'm not sure we have a choice. Um, I'm curious. A lot of the solutions uh, and the recommendations that came out of the survey seem to be geared toward municipalities and states and taxes. So what do you think is the sort of responsibility or what action falls at the feet of resorts in terms of solving these problems? I mean, it's, you know, you look at Vail Resorts, you look at Aspen Skiing, you look at these heavy hitters, they've been nose to the grindstone for decades. You know, Vail gives a lot of money for affordable housing and they can't even spend it because their projects, it's just so slow. It's such an involved process. It takes so long to win approval to build three stories of high density housing in a resort community. That is not, it's just not something that, that it happens easily. So the money's there, the will is there. It's just the ability and some of the red tape that can really challenge these uh, resort companies and resort communities. But you're right. The, the survey did show, Katie, that there's going to be, you know, this is some municipal changes need to be made and local government needs to adjust the way they do these things. And if we get a coalition of local resort governments working together at either a state or a national level, pushing, you know, the low hanging fruit right now is short term rentals, um, you know, that the short term rentals are in the crosshairs. And another one that I didn't even mention is the whole idea of tourism marketing. And you know, these are two things that are really in the crosshairs right now. And I'm thinking we will never, they'll never return to the way they were uh, pre pandemic. Um, thanks, Jason. That was some great insights. We'll be coming right back for more after we thank our partner, Doppelmeyer. Innovative transport systems from Doppelmeyer Garaventa continually set new standards. Top comfort and safety define their installations in summer and winter tourism regions, as well as in the urban transit sector. Their material transport systems and ropeways for preventative avalanche blasting offer impressive efficiency and performance. To date, the group has built more than 15,000 installations for customers in 96 nations. Learn more at www.doppelmeyer.com. www.doppelmeyer.com. Let's let's turn now to our three operators on the panel today and hear how the labor and housing crisis is impacting them and how they're addressing it. So, um, let's start first up with Davy Rochford, who is the GM from Snow Basin, Utah, and have to mention Sammy Hall of Famer from Class of 2020. So, Davy, let's start. How's your summer going? Summer is going pretty good. Um, 
it's funny that we're talking about this topic because this morning I had a meeting with my staff about these issues because we have to take some serious, uh, make some serious decisions very quickly on some of the events that we have. And if we pull back and basically leave money on the table because of staffing shortages and a very serious meeting this morning, very concerning about, you know, the ability to meet the demand because the demand is really high. And I'm sure everyone that's an operator right now, I'm assuming it's that way everywhere. Definitely in Utah, we're seeing that. So um, it's a good summer. It's challenging because I think we could do better, but we we're in a bit of a, a, a crisis as it relates to staffing. And I can speak to that if you'd like and kind of go through what we're seeing in Utah. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I reached out to you because I saw a post on social about um, a $500 signing bonus to get um, some F&B employees. So that's what got me calling you and and yeah, so let us know. Yeah, so, and, and we just did a $500 referral bonus if you can refer somebody can work for us. So we're talking like very serious issues. So just statistically some things that might be of interest to everybody. Uh, the Salt Lake City Airport, which is brand new, they did a really good job building that airport. As of June, they were at, they were 50% of their jobs they still hadn't filled yet at the airport. When you look at the unemployment rate in Utah, it's at 2.7%. The national average is 5.8%. You look at the workforce, uh, the, so the total amount of people of age that could work prior to the pandemic, that was at 69%. Right now it's at 67%. That's 40,000 jobs of people that could work that are not working, uh, choosing to not work. Uh, really interesting statistic, and we kind of probably all saw this as an operation, operating uh, force through the pandemic, is it's estimated that about 20% of all food and beverage employment was lost and will and they're not coming back. Um, so 20% of people, we closed down restaurants, we closed down the nation with food and beverage. 20% of that workforce that have historically been in food and beverage jobs have left and we don't know how to get them back. And I think that's something of a, you know, when you look at the industry as a whole across the nation, not just the ski industry, it's a it's a challenging challenging bit of statistics that we're working with. So, from salaries to you know hourly rates to perks. In our case, and I, you know you start off with the simple things like why do people want to come work in the ski industry? Uh, it's a big question. Fifty-two um, percent of my staff don't ski, um, and I, I bet when you go around and you actually ask that question, I bet it's high everywhere. Uh, people, it's for a lot of people, it's just a job. I'm unique. I didn't come from the, the ground up. I was um, in professional sports. I was recruited into the industry over a decade ago. Um, I, it, was, it was a good job early on. So I didn't, I didn't go through the living in a van down by the river, as Andy talked about. I didn't go through that process. I lived in a bit of a different van uh, and a different river, but something you know akin to what people go through. But I never experienced that mountain town piece. But for me personally, I lived in Lake Tahoe. I was recruited into a job in Lake Tahoe. I lived in Vail, lived in Park City. So these are not um, inexpensive places to live. And you know, for us, this will be the first year in Snow Basin's history that we're looking to acquire more permanent um, employee housing. So part of what Utah deals with is, you know, we're so close to the Wasatch Front, major population areas in Salt Lake and Ogden, and you can, you know, generally find places to stay. But the real estate market being where the way they are, it's it's almost impossible. And so between labor issues, workforce issues, and employee housing issues, we're we're getting very very creative um, in how to make that work. Um, really interesting stuff, especially as it relates to perks for for employees. Like, again, the question you should be asking is why are you coming to work here? And I think one of the major things that this if the, somebody asks a question, if not now, when? many ways to apply that question. One of the things that really strikes me is how are we creating uh, a brand around skiing generally about long-term careers in the ski industry, especially for underrepresented people? Um, how are we getting people into a job that hopefully, when you think about, it always struck me as a, a, a young you know, leader in the ski industry, and I'd go to the, you know, Ski Hall of Fame uh, awards. And we're talking about legends, you know, 50 years ago, people that have done incredible things and they're in, the, they're in the industry for a long, long time. 
how is that going to be in 10 or 15 years? Like who's been in the industry? Like how are we creating that legendary workforce in this industry for the next 20, 30 years? That's a big question because right now we're seeing workforce people, people coming in maybe for a season, maybe two seasons, and then they're gone. So how do we create the next generation of leaders, people that can rise through the ranks of the ski industry? And that's something I've, I've seen in all the different markets I've worked in in the ski industry or Vail Resorts, now for Snow Basin. How do, how do we create that long-term employment? And yeah. a lot of it comes down to wage adjustments and those perks and why, why they need to come work for us. And you, you and I talked about how um, it, we have to move beyond that, that cool job I did that one winter or that one summer, like Katie's, you know, and then they think about now I need to get a real job. And I, you know, you and I talked about changing the whole value proposition around what it means to work for a mountain resort, that it's not just the fun, cool job with the season pass that doesn't work anymore. We have competition, higher salaries, more options, changes in, you know, the workforce after a pandemic. What is Snow Basin doing to up your game to attract well, I think our big thing now is we've got to reevaluate the, the perks. Uh, you know, if we think, if we've been relying on low salaries, but saying, hey, it's okay, you get a ski ticket, that, that philosophy is gone. Um, I think if that works for some of you, that's great. Um, that doesn't necessarily work for us anymore. Um, I, I think that's a big piece is, is why people come and, and those perks for employment. Um, these wage adjustments and the way we're looking at trying to get creative with hiring people, one interesting thing I should point out, we, we, were, we looked at in one regard that we have some senior leaders in food and beverage that when it's a little slower in the summer, um, they went up to uh, Seward Winsong Lodge, I have to write it down, which is a, a, a partnership we created with them up in Alaska where they go up there, they continue their trade. So I have, we have about 10 or 12 people up there right now that will come back in the fall. Um, it's getting really creative with how we share resources, who we're working with, you know, the, the myopic, it's, these are my people and, you know, I got to nurture my people. There might be some options if you start looking and partnering with people in off-season kind of areas and how we work better in communicating. Uh, we're doing that currently with Alaska and it, it seems to work well. Obviously, the J1 issue is huge, um, huge for many reasons. I think one of the things that's very sorely missed beyond the workforce is the cultural implications that we desperately need as, as an employee. We need our employees, especially with the more destination guests we're coming in, they need to have experiences around foreign internationals that bring a, a, you know, a liveliness to our experience. There's so much to that that we have yet to kind of understand the impacts for if we lose that workforce. Um, so there's many different things that get to your question of like what we're trying to get. Right now, it's lodging for the employee housing for the first time ever, wage adjustments, bonuses, um, I've gotten really good at cutting the grass and flipping burgers. Um, <laughs> it's, it's whatever it takes to make it through this process. But long-term, I think one of the answers that we need to find out is how are we nurturing, retaining talented people for a long period of time? Yeah. Uh, and the fun weekend, uh, the fun summer or winter job philosophy, we, we've got we've to move past that. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, David. Those are some great insights. Thank you for sharing. Um, we're going to move on to Becca DeShane, who's the marketing director at Cranmore, New Hampshire. Um, now we're moving to a different part of the country, but you know, as we said at the start of the call, same problems. Um, Cranmore is a four-season resort located in the White Mountains, and, and they are in a very busy tourism area. Um, they have a full offering of summer activities, including mountain bike park, their adventure park with coasters and giant swings and the aerial adventure course and, and the full thing. Um, so in a normal summer, Becca, you operate seven days a week. How's that going? Well, um, like most of our other people that we're hearing from, we've had to make some changes due to um, labor shortages. So we've had to modify our summer operating schedule um, during the peak summer months, um, operating five days a week compared to what we would do in a typical year, we'd be open daily. Um, we've also had to modify what we have open for our summer attractions. Um, which means not operating our aerial adventure park, um, which is historically staffed with international students, which we don't have this summer, um, and not operating some of our soft attractions, such as like our bouncy houses and climbing wall and bungee trampoline. Um, so we've really had to simplify, take a look at what we have and just simplify um, what we have. Um, we've had a plethora of 14 and 15 year old applications um, one thing we're not seeing is the 18 year plus applications come through. 
Um, and those are our, our operators. Um, so that's really the, the missing piece to our summer operation. Um, and we saw the same thing this past winter where we had to modify our tubing park um, hours of operation as well because we didn't have operate, operators to run the um, surface lifts for the park. Um, what about your job fairs? You said you did you were quite aggressive with your job fairs. How did yep. that? Um, so this past year we did host a few job fairs, um, and I would say I worked hand in hand with our HR director to really push out um, these events. And there were some that we sat and didn't have anybody. Um, we sat in a few state um, and regional job fairs as well and had minimal attendance to our virtual booth. Um, so it's really just finding the missing the missing piece to the puzzle here. Um, we focus a lot um, on benefits as well. Um, there's a ton of competition in the Valley um, with restaurants and shops and other attractions um, where you can go and be a dishwasher for $17 an hour at one of the restaurants down the street where that's not financially feasible for our resort, our size to be able to offer that as a, an operator. Um, and a lot of um, these other businesses and attractions are offering sign-on bonuses as well. Um, we do have a referral um, program with our staff who refer and bring on new employees. Um, so that's one thing that we are doing. Um, and we're also, we also work with local landlords to secure housing for employees as a, as an option, um, which a lot of people aren't fighting at. Um, so that's kind of an off one because this, the Valley is a tourism based area. Um, and real estate is super hot right now. Um, housing inventory doesn't sit long. Most of the time it's being picked up by second homeowners um, that are either gonna come here and live seasonally or they put them in a short-term rental program. Um, so we are looking at ways to secure our own permanent housing and dorm style housing um, for our employees or potential employees and international students, um, but that's more of a long-term project for us. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more about how you're partnering with HR and why that partnership, that marketing HR par partnership is important. Sure. Um, so we just want to really make sure what we're doing to attract new, new employees really stays on brand. Um, we're able to do more digital outreach um, through social media and just more targeted digital campaigns to reach an obviously reach a um, broader audience. Um, and that's something that we really haven't really done much of um, besides this the past year. So is that a new relationship of you working together, marketing yes. and HR? That's it. Yep. The digital campaigns is interesting, right? It's treating your prospective employees as guests, right? You have targeted marketing to different yep. guest demographics. For sure. Great. Well, thanks so much, Becca, um, for sharing about what's going on in, in your neck of the woods. Um, our third operator on the panel is Chris McGinnis, who's the president of Crystal Mountain, Michigan, and her team actually is here as well. Jim is there, okay. Tom Helter. So, um, so um, Chris, John, and and the whole um, and Jim, whole team at Crystal. You know, you've always been forward thinkers, and you've made Crystal into a very successful four season uh, resort. But I'm sure, Chris, you would deflect that compliment because you always say it's your your asset or your people. Your people are the most important asset, and that's where all the the magic of Crystal is. Um, and as the biggest employer in your community, um, you know, I understand that that role is, is important to you. And then, you know, the pandemic hit, and that was hard. You survived it. You even had some um, silver linings, I, you know, that you shared with us. Um, but now you're facing this, you know, long tail of COVID with an accelerated challenge around housing and labor shortages. So as you see it and you look at it, what, what are the, what are, where are these challenges being in, how are the impacts, where are they coming from? Olivia, as usual, thank you so much for teeing up the conversation and, and teeing up, you know, at least our comments a little bit. Hmm. Um, I would have to say, to begin with that um, many of the experiences that we're experiencing here at Crystal in the Midwest are, are certainly similar to others, uh, the experiences that the panelists have already uh, described and Jason has described and Andy. But uh, 
when you reached out to us, I described it. I'm going to focus more on uh, the labor shortage um, versus the housing, though certainly, you know, they are inextricably linked. I don't think we have as as challenge as much of a challenge in terms of housing as there is in the West, but certainly we do have a big challenge with housing. But the more immediate um, impacts for us, um, and again, as I described, it's kind of the, the perfect storm. Um, so I broke it out into a, a couple of, of uh, points here. One would be the unemployment insurance that the assistance, um, you know, the that is, I think, affecting. I don't think, you know, we got to put that skunk on the table. And I don't know that we necessarily disagree with the concept, but essentially in Michigan, and I'm sure this is true in many states, UI assistance with the supplemental is about $16 an hour. So when when we see McDonald's advertising for $15, all they're, all we're all doing, and, and certainly we're doing the same, is it, at some level we're competing with, with UI. Um, and I believe, and I think Andy addressed it, uh, um, and Davey, I think you also addressed it, that we are looking at a new level here in terms of compensation. Um, so we have really very, very few positions that effectively now are not at 16, and we'd be pretty silly if we did because we wouldn't be able to attract anyone. Essentially, at Crystal right now, we're about, I'm going to say we're about 20% short. We have 500, John, help me out, 530 people maybe on payroll, and we really would like to be uh, close to, 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 to uh, 600. Um, um, and we certainly are losing some business because of our inability to fully staff. Um, and going back to Becca's, Becca's comment, um, you know, there, there are areas, for the most part, we haven't had to close operations down, but we are um, reducing hours. One of the factors, um, you know, and I, I, I make it very clear that I don't think that people who are getting unemployment assistance are simply staying home, you know, eating bonbons, so to speak. I think there are very real challenges, uh, particularly with the frontline uh, positions. And this is where we're having the most challenge, and I think most people are, that $15 to $17 an hour wage. Many of those people are filled. It's Many of them are, are female staff members, and they're doing trade-offs. Do I stay home and take care of my, ch my children? You know, or do I have daycare, which I, I that I'm going to have to pay for daycare. Transportation is another issue. Another issue that we have seen a fair amount would be uh, frontline positions who are staying home to help parent. My, my, my mother is ill. My grandmother's ill. So there's a lot of caregiving trade-offs. And I think we really have to be sensitive to that. Um, but but it also has certainly changed. I'm going to say uh, the comp, the wage compensation, our job classifications, our our wage categories have have shifted um, really from 12, 13, 14 to the 15. To, I would say 14 to 18 dollar range for most entry level frontline positions. Another factor that we're looking at, and I think many of us are experiencing, and particularly we're seeing this in food and beverage, but we're seeing it in some other areas. The gig worker has never had access to unemployment insurance, particularly the supplemental that they have now. So this is allowing that gig worker a lot more flexibility in terms of what gigs do they specifically want to pick up. So an area that we're seeing this, um, and this would be in the massage, you know, our, our spa. And here we have, um, again, licensed massage therapists, estheticians, um, cosmetologists. They can open their shop in their house. They can do it, you know, on the cheap, and they can also still get unemployment. So the gigs that they may have picked up, we, we love to have full-time uh, year-round uh, spa service workers, again, massage therapists, estheticians, cosmetologists, but many of them are part-time and they're able right now to be sustainable without necessarily picking up those shifts at, at Crystal. 
another factor, and again, we're, we're talking about it, but certainly would be the immigration and worker visa policies. We were very, very fortunate this year that we um, did, we, we were we, in a good position in the lottery. So we do have, I think, 10 um, H2B uh, fabulous Jamaican workers. And when we talk about our food and uh, our housekeeping operations, uh, we would we, we certainly could not be running at the occupancies that we're currently running. And we're running close to 80% occupied um, right now with, without the good help that they are supplying in addition to our current staff. Like many of you, we, we didn't get our international students and this has hurt us terrifically in terms of, uh, again, being able to staff many of those recreational areas. The advantages we have with the international students is it's very flexible as far as uh, the positions that they're in, um, but it, it, particularly in the recreation areas, again, and in food and beverage, that has affected us. A third area that I think is worth at least throwing out, um, because is this shorter term, and I think all of us on this call are understanding that this is a real paradigm shift. And why is it a paradigm shift? Um, I think one of the factors that we all need to kind of uh, wrap our heads around is like most first world countries, the US now has a negative growth rate. So, you know, what does that mean? It means more people are dying that are being born. So do we think this labor shortage um, is short term or as, you know, again, the, the panel and the discussion that we're all talking about, um, is this somewhat here to stay? And I think when you look at the demographics, um, you know, that we would be naive if we did not assume that, that there are long term generational implications here. And I think that we have to advocate for multiple solutions. I mean, certainly less restrictive immigration policies. We need, um, you know, immigration and also uh, visas. So we need seasonal workers, um, but let's look at immigration. I mean, the U.S. has become very, very restrictive in immigration. And who are the families that actually are responsible uh, for family uh, uh, creation? primarily. So, um, you know, at some at some level, we have, I think, in terms of our overall access to a growing population and access to wor workers, um, you know, we've gotten what we've asked for in some level, as far as, um, you know, as, as I say, as far as far as uh, limiting limiting access to the United States. And if we want to grow and have the workers that we need to sustain our economy and to grow our economy, we probably do need to have some, you know, consideration, not only of visas, but also immigration. And, you know, finally, on my list, uh, you know, certainly housing is a is an issue again andy has addressed it very well um and i think davy did and 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 uh jason uh, the survey that you're doing the point that was made about what are the careers you know how does how do we make this a career rather than just a short-term gig that that is really that's the nexus with housing and I think the challenge, and we've talked a bit about this, but it's, it's an opportunity. For many of us, we may, our real estate values are very, are quite high here at Crystal, certainly in, com in comparison with the community, our, our, the, the community that we, our address, which I'm gonna say is Thompsonville. Is this an opportunity for us to, to bolster, um, just as Vale has done, um, you know, what are some of the solutions to actually help the community and create more, um, I'm going to say, uh, vitality and vibrancy of residential populations that surround us? I believe it is. And I really believe that conversations like this provide us with extremely good ideas about, again, how to reach out to what are some of the distressed communities in our area that um, we would really benefit from having housing stock that's of a better quality that we can use both for 
um, our year-round employees as well as potentially some some of um, some of our seasonal workers. So those are a few of the areas on on my list. Jim or John, is there anything else? Are there any any other areas that um, either of you want to comment on? I, I think Christy did a great job of covering that. I would just say a few of the things that we've done to address the you know, the, the labor challenge is obviously similar to what others have reported. You know, we've tried the uh, multiple job fairs, either drive through virtual or in person, but it, it, it's tough getting, getting folks in. Um, similar to last winter, we've had to uh, reimagine some of our, uh, how we're operating our outlets. And, and one that comes to mind is a, a restaurant operation that we're now able to operate with just uh, three folks, just, just because we don't have um, the, the robust staff that we'd like to have. Um, and then we've also come up with a surge list that tries to pair employees looking for additional hours uh, with departments that, uh, that need additional help um, to provide that surge strength when, when we do get busy. And that's, uh, that, that's been helpful for us uh, as well. And then to, to a similar comment, our, our marketing team has been uh, probably more engaged um, in supplementing the efforts that uh, our human resources team uh, will typically do to, uh, to attract employees. So, um, you know, it, we're, we're experiencing that you know the same same things I think everybody else is and trying to continue um, you know the process that we went through last winter trying to reimagine okay how are we going to do things uh, in this particular environment. Thanks, John. I think what I'd like to do now is um, Dave Bird, NSAA, and um, you have been able to listen to everybody and take in you know the various challenges. I'm sure that's a main part of what you're thinking about every day too. So. Um, and I've heard the various folks on the panel here sure. um, give us your assessment of, you know, those challenges and what NSA is doing to um, take the ball and run with some of these or what's coming down possibly with Fed money to help out with affordable housing. And just yeah, give us some. So uh, a couple of things. There are two pieces of legislation going on in Congress right now, uh, both connected to infrastructure. One is the bipartisan hard infrastructure bill, which does not have any money for workplace housing. The second bill uh, that's in the Senate right now, which is what people are referring to as soft infrastructure, this is right now about a $3.5 trillion bill that does have some funding for workforce housing. Uh, President Biden in his first proposal uh, on infrastructure that was released back in March had some significant federal money for workforce housing, particularly rural workforce housing. And then that kind of shrunk down uh, with negotiations um, uh, with a bipartisan group of people. This second piece of legislation would have to go through, it's being called the reconciliation process, because you're not going to get any Republicans to support federal funding for child care, uh, for climate change um, technology issues that are not directly connected to tran um, transportation, housing, um, senior care, a lot of these more softer issues um, uh, from an infrastructure standpoint. So that is a very delicate um, legislative ballet, and it's going to require people like Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Kristen Cinema from Arizona to weigh in. So that um, we may know more about that by say September. Uh, Chuck Schumer, uh, the majority leader says he wants both bills done before the August recess. I think that that is highly unlikely. But one thing, Olivia, I do wanna point out, back in 2018, um, NSA worked on legislation allowing for workforce housing on forest service land. Um, and that did pass, it's a, it's a small bill and it does allow for communities and even private businesses to obtain leases on existing federal facilities, administrative sites, um, maybe it's an old storage uh, location, doesn't have to be connected to a, a ski resort um, within their boundaries. It can be five miles away, it can be seven miles away, it could be forest service land in Michigan, um, even if your ski area is not on forest service land paying market value for those rates. You have to go through NEPA. Right now, it, uh, we're trying to get um, the lease length uh, for those leases of administrative uh, sites up to 60 years. 
to make it more attractive for lending. But it's something people should be looking at. And I, and I mention this because the legislation was the first of its kind ever passed in 2018, and it does expire October 1st, 2023. We may try and get that extended, um, but there's, uh, you do have to give your community or municipality the right of first refusal. So as Andy was saying earlier, you know, public-private partnerships are going to be absolutely critical and these sites are available within, you know, a 15, 20 mile radius of a ski resort or a mountain community. Uh, ideally, it would be on public transportation, but uh, it's something that ski areas should look at as a, as a potential long term. It's the only affordable property within these mountain communities. Um, it's not a perfect piece of legislation, but it has passed and it will expire if it's not extended after 2023. Well, that will be one to watch for sure. Um, thanks, Dave. I appreciate you giving us an update on that. Christine from Big Sky, can you share, I know you're early in the stages, but you um, said that you're working a little bit on a transparent um, career path at Big Sky. I would love if you could share, and I know you guys are struggling big time, and you know, with the with these challenges, um, I've talked to some people there. But um, if you guys are starting to make some moves to addressing that, you know, more sustainable career path, um, what are you guys? What are you doing? Yeah, sure. So um, when Nick Heron was here a couple of years ago, you know, I think the PSI ASI um, report said that people leave this industry because they either don't get enough face time with leadership, or they don't see a path forward. So I think something I didn't put in the comment is that we've made a really concerted effort of anytime we have a position available, even if there's the obvious choice to fill it, putting it out and trying to really reach out to the team to see who's interested and figure out even if they're not the right person yet, or they don't have the skills yet, the interest, and then trying to find some increased leadership opportunity for them. So that's something that we've been doing for a little while that's been helpful and has helped us build a little bit of a bench in the leadership role. I don't know if we have any data that shows that it's helping us retain other folks as well, but hopefully so. Um, and then looking, we have a fairly transparent pay structure, but we've always tied a performance piece to your increase for the following year. So I'm sure like most folks for instructors, you have set amounts that they might increase with a, a level one, level two, and any accreditation. So we have all of that, and that's very clear and transparent. But at the end of the season, part of our review process includes a performance raise. And that's the piece that we're considering. If we can still measure and recognize performance, but maybe not tie it to pay because it creates a little bit of a, and that's not fair, favoritism type feel, and we know that those pieces are also damaging to staff retention and just to the, the culture that we want to create. So we want to keep those pieces, but maybe move them away from pay so that if you are a new instructor, you can see if I get my level one this year, my level two, maybe in two years, my level three and five years, and I work full time. And maybe I maybe it encourages people. I can't remember who is speaking to um, the training in different places, sending the team to uh to Alaska and they're getting experience there, you know, maybe this incentivizes folks to be working in the Southern hemisphere. And so they're increasing their experience in the, in the job and hopefully stay a little bit longer. And then they can see, okay, if I'm here now in five years, if I do all of these things, this is where I can be. Yeah. It sounds as though that's, that's an effort that we all need to address is uh, a, a clear path and that's, that's, something consistent, I would think, throughout the mountain resort industry so that we can really attract more broadly and mm -hmm. not just have a couple of good examples, but everybody's getting on the same page of, of a Yeah. And another piece, we have a, I think, a good system, but it's fairly complicated. So we're looking to simplify it. So as we're having those first conversations with instructors that we can clearly communicate what our pay structure is versus saying, well, you're going to start at this wage, but with this bonus and this bonus, and eventually your actualized wage will be this. And you know, that first number that we said was not a very good number, right? But when they're actually paid out, they're making good money and we lost them by the first number. 
Well, we have our work cut out for us, but it sounds like some resorts are already digging in and trying to reinvent and um, reevaluate the way we have been doing it. These problems aren't new, but they are at the forefront of the challenges ahead, and the conversation doesn't end here. Join the community by subscribing to SAM Magazine and get six issues of content tailored to the challenges facing the mountain resort industry. www.saminfo.com slash subscribe. Thank you to our partner Doppelmeyer for their support of this conversation. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. The Pod Sam Advisor is Alex Kaufman, the Wintry Mix Podcast Guy. I am Sarah Bordeaux, and thank you for listening to Pod Sam. <laughs>